Hello, thank you for that, and congratulations on being pressed. Thank you. Thanks, Noel, for the introduction. You got it, Gallagher. <laughs> um, welcome to LA. Thank Is this your first time here? Yes. Oh, well, welcome. Um, <laughs> so you're wrapping up your U.S. book tour. That's right. Um, you started in New York, right? I started in New York, and then um, at Manhattan, Brooklyn, and then we drove around the Midwest, and then we flew to California and San Francisco, Berkeley, and this is the last one. Nice. Um, I did a little internet stalking on you. Oh, good. And uh, I read that in an interview you said that uh, to prepare for your tour, you did a Google search on at what temperature do eyeballs freeze? Yes. <laughs> that is true. I mean, um, before I started this book tour, before my book came out, I had this time planned in to pre prepare for the book tour, uh, but there was nothing to prepare uh, except Googling the temperature in the places that I would visit. And um, I'm not good with Fahrenheit, but it was... Um, at that time, it was minus 20 degrees Celsius in Minneapolis, and I never experienced that, so I was worried about it. And we bought big coats, and uh, I googled at what temperature do your eyeballs freeze, because I wondered if that was something I had to... But they don't. Not until you're dead. Then they freeze. So then, nice. then it's not a problem. <laughs> I'm glad you're here in warmer LA now. Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about her debut novel, Rest Like Everyone Else. Uh, if you will do a short reading, we'll do some conversation and maybe one more reading, a little more conversation, and then we'll open up to the conversation to you guys. Um, but first, let me do a quick little intro to the book. Uh, Rest Like Everyone Else is this, I have to say, a really fantastic novel. Um, I, I loved it. Um, it basically deals with, um, and these are my own words, of some characters dealing with struggling to fit into the modern world. Um, there's such a great cast of characters, um, and the one there's a um, blonde ponytailed postal worker. Can you turn to the? <laughs> Interesting. Um, and she, along with the reader, kind of observes this neighborhood where all these characters live and their lives crisscross. And so they're not necessarily realizing that they're intersecting as much as we see. Um, but there's such a great cast. Um, I'm just going to share a couple stories. Um, there is Mrs. Lucas, I'm sorry, Mrs. Blue, who uh, her, her world is turned upside down when her favorite soap opera is canceled. There's Mr. Lucas, a uh, agoraphobic uh, veteran who's been hiding in his apartment for years and gets an invitation from the Queen to come see a memorial service. Um, there's Laura. She's a secretary who is really struggling to fit in and um, can't, is really awkward at small talk, um, has trouble seeing colors, and thinks she might be having, might have a mental problem. Uh, there's Ashraf. He's a delivery guy, and he's trying to like become like an entrepreneur and have, come up with his own delivery business. And then there's Russ, who um, for 25 years has been living undetected by the government, and through the enticement of a free calculator, uh, fills out what's essentially a census report. And the government discovers he's living illegally at the top of a building and um, 
bills him for ta back taxes and he has to get a job. So it's a really great story of all these characters' lives and it jumps around quickly and um, it's very compelling. And so, yeah, I thought we could open with just a short what passage. City? What city of the world? It doesn't say the city, but we can talk about that. So. It's a, an unnamed uh, metropolis. So I, I never named the city. I also never named the currency, which was a tricky part. Um, I'll, I'll read a bit from uh, Russ. This is one of his earliest uh, chapters. So Russ, as Gallagher said, he, um, he's been living under the radar for most of his life. His mother homeschooled him. He's been living on this um, self-built fourth floor apartment on a three-story housing block. And when his mother abandoned him, she left him with a debit card and that the, on which he receives her monthly benefits. And he uses that to get his daily coffee and groceries, but he never interacts with the city around him until he, he gets his first tax bill. And this is after he got the bill. Russ and the letter. It took Russ a long time to find the post office, since he'd never been there before, and it turned out to be the large orange building next to the supermarket. It had a square, square hallway, and the post office employees sat behind windows on the opposite side of the entrance. Russ waited for a very long time, until it turned out he had to get a number from a bull, and then he got it, and then he waited a very long time again. Now it was his turn. The woman behind the window had broad shoulders and red hair. First of all, Russ said, I'd like to return this. Russ held the letter up in front of the window. Then he shoved it in the slot under the window toward the lady. Secondly, he continued, I wish to declare that I don't need any more mail ever. Please inform the mailman. The woman behind the window lifted her eyebrows and she smiled at Russ. After that, she took the letter, turned it around, and shoved it back to Russ's side of the window. You're giving it back, Russ said. Yes, the woman said. Russ looked at the letter. He put his hands on the paper and tried to push it back in the slot. But the woman blocked it with her hands. I need the letter to go behind the window, Russ said. You mean in front of the window, the woman said. I am in front of the window, Russ said, and I want the letter to go behind the window, so the window is between the letter and me. If you could move your hands, please. You are behind the window, the woman said. I watched you fuss around with your tax bill behind the window like I'm watching television. This is not my tax bill, Russ said. I never get bills. The woman brought her face close to the little holes in the window. When I'm at home, I watch the people behind my window, walking and driving down the street. One day I saw an old lady fall into the bushes. It took 15 minutes until someone helped her out of there. Nobody cares anymore nowadays. Madam, Russ said, bringing his face close to the window too. I just want to return this letter. I don't want it. It makes me feel very nervous and unpleasant. And all I'm asking of you is to take it back and tell the postman I don't need his services. Would you do that? The woman smiled at Russ. She smiled for a while without saying anything, as if there weren't a lot of people waiting with numbers. Sir, the woman said eventually, the mail is not sent by the mail. It's sent by the sender. 
Ah, Russ said. I see. I apologize. In that case, please inform the sender that I don't want it anymore. He paused to think. All of the senders. It's not possible, the woman said. If you knew what kind of things they say in this letter, Russ replied. One moment I was in my bed, not harming anyone, and the next moment I'm bombarded with demands for this and for that and for money I do not have. He was aware that he was yelling, but he couldn't stop. They threatened me in that letter. They say 2,615 immediately, because otherwise they'll be forced to regretfully sell my bed and my kitchen and my clothes, and I don't want it. I need my bed and my kitchen and my clothes. Deb, the woman nodded. Most of our letters are about Deb. You're funny to watch. When you get upset, you get red spots in your neck. And you twist your face while you speak. But my lunch break starts now. The woman shoved her chair back and switched off the lights behind her window. Returning letters won't help you, she said from the dark cubicle. The letters are merely the way it manifests itself. I would read that letter very carefully and pay up. If you ignore it, something huge will be set in motion. What do you mean? What's that thing that's set in motion? How do I see it coming? Ross asked. But the woman did not reply. She reached for her purse and rolled down the curtain, leaving Russ just standing there, alone in the post office among the waiting people, who didn't look at him but at the screen that set the numbers. So that's, that's Russ's first bit. This is where he... Uh, sets out into the into the world where did uh where did the idea of rust first come from um rust started uh when i was in art school um i think it started with i had to get a passport um from the city council office um and so I went there and I paid 50 euros and they gave me the passport. And then I looked at it um, and it had all the pages had, uh, were torn. So I went back into the office and I said, um, my passport is damaged. I don't think this will work. I need a new one. And the lady used the computer and she said, um, was the passport uh, stolen or lost? <laughs> And uh, I said, no, you gave it to me, damaged. Um, and I was afraid they were going to charge me twice. So I said, uh, it wasn't stolen, it wasn't lost, it was damaged. And she said, she said, stolen or lost? And I said, no. And she said, um, I said, can't you put in the computer that it was um, damaged? And she said, Miss, the computer speaks a language that no one understands. <laughs> if if your if you don't if your answer doesn't fit in the system, it doesn't exist. <laughs> and that would, that experience stayed with me for a while. I thought it was really funny. And um, th at the time, I was writing, and this character emerged, this Russ, who was in an um, he was in a in an office, and um, he he tried his best to to fit in, but it didn't really work, and he kept doing things that weren't really allowed and didn't fit into the system of the office. And I wrote a story about that, and I didn't know what to do with the story. And then later on, I started this job delivering the mail. And then Russ came back. So you, you actually had a job delivering mail? I had a job delivering the mail. It's a great job. I can recommend it to everybody. 
Especially if you're a writer. Did you get to kind of know the, the different people you delivered to, um, their, their lives and stuff? Definitely. I thought I would get, uh, I was doing this master's, part-time master's, and I needed a side job. Um, and I thought I, I want a job that I can move my body mm-hmm. um, and doesn't take too much mind, up too much mind space. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that didn't turn out to be uh, the case. Because no. <laughs> uh, when you deliver the mail, you get to know so much about people. You come up to the door at the same time each day. Uh, Dutch people all have their curtains open. This is national thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then, so you have this glimpse into their in, into their house. And then, the the letters. Some people would get stacks of letters from debt collectors. The most of the letters I had were uh, bills, like in a story. Hmm. Um, and I'd worry about these people. And some people would be at home all the time watching television or playing video games. Uh, Sometimes I would notice that someone got fired uh, because suddenly they were home and in the beginning they would dress and then at some point they wouldn't really dress anymore. Uh, Fascinating. Yeah, I worried a lot about these people. And um, Did they have any idea? Or was it just very quick, you just gave them the mail and you moved on? not, I think most people don't think about their, the person delivering their mail. Uh-huh. There were a couple of people who needed me to uh, read letters to them because they couldn't read. Oh, wow. So they, uh, we kind of bonded. Nice. Um, well, they definitely, I can see that now that you say that in the book. Because um, one of the really cool features of the novel is how quickly it moves points of view. Um, some of the passages are like a paragraph. But it'll jump from Mrs. Blue to Luke, Mr. Lucas to the secretary. Um, and I, I love that, that style. It was really compelling. And um, like in my, in my novel, the first one, um, it's very linear. And so I've been thinking about ways to kind of break out of that. And so this is really good inspiration for, that, for my next one. Um, but I was curious how you like, ended up with that. I mean, did it just come that way at the beginning? Or did you write each story separately and then combine them? Like, how did, how did you end up with that narrative structure? Um, I didn't think too much about it. I would these characters uh, just popped up in my head, and most of them came from this experience delivering the mail. And they were all kind of isolated people, and I would just see them in my mind's eye, and I would write down what they were doing. And uh, there were just little snippets. Uh, so I had all these short pieces, um, and I don't like to write. Uh, I don't like to write where characters go from one place to the other or when I have to write two hours went by or something. So I just end the <laughs> chapter. And I made these drawings for uh, all the scenes that I wrote uh-huh. because I didn't know yet how I was going to fit it into one novel. And I, I put them all on the wall so I had an overview of the whole book. And then I thought about how do these characters, how can I tie them in? And I realized that the thing that was keeping them together was this, was me delivering the mail. So I introduced the narrator. Mm-hmm. And then it started working. But like you said, it's, it's nice for the writer, this, the, all these short chapters. Yeah. But you do need to kind of help the reader out. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, all the characters, like I said earlier, were kind of really struggling with that, like fitting into the modern world. Um, and, you know, it's not like intentionally they're resisting like technology or anything it's just they just happen to 
get by. So I was curious, and it sounds like through your um, male experience, um, that it sounds like it's pretty easy for people to just suddenly 10, 20 years go by and the world has kind of just moved on, but they haven't. I mean, like, rest other than visits to Starbucks and a debit card really has no idea, like, what what life is like today. And, um, I mean, so, I mean, is that, is that something you kind of observed through... The, through the, the, the job of delivering mail? Yes, there's so many of these people, mm-hmm. and I, I relate to it. I find some of the things that uh, are part of taking part in uh, modern life, also, I also find them difficult. And I can completely imagine how you would get into that position where you're just stuck in the system or don't fit in the system, and you're just every day this huge load of mail comes in through your door and you don't know what to do and you won't leave the house anymore. So I can... And I, I started thinking, when I did the, the mail, I started thinking about knowing you're born. Um, this is kind of out there, but you... you <laughs> Try us. Yeah. <laughs> well, you need to find food and shelter. And it could be said that you need to be part of a community to survive. And we have all this progress which is great uh, but it's also really complicated so you need to be able to present yourself you need to be able to have conversations and have the right conversations and you need to filter out the things you shouldn't say and you need to understand the taxes and you need to be able to do job interviews and even at the office when you have the job it's not certain that you'll keep it it's not certain if you'll you'll be able to keep your house uh, all these things are uncertain, and it's really quite difficult. And it's something that the characters have in common, I think. Yeah, and also, there's the main characters who have that in common, but then, and I might be reading into this too much, but um, it's interesting because they all are kind of stuck in their own lives, and so it feels like they're in that, these bubbles. But then the people in the modern world are also in bubbles too because they're kind of like zombies. Like Russ's job is at an office and there's a sound coming out of a vent above him and he can't focus at all because it's just so distracting. But all the other workers just keep going like as if it's not there. Um, so it's interesting how even though like they probably seem as like uh, you know anachronistic or whatever that um, they are very similar because they're just kind of stuck in their 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 modes. Um, I don't. Do you think there's like a happy medium between the two, or? Uh, you mean uh, you mean you want the, like the solution, <laughs> right? Perhaps. Um, I think in this book, while I wrote it, I started to develop this antenna for these kind of situations. But it's not always like this. Mm -hmm. And um, in bookstores, for instance, you don't have to make small talk at all. Mm -hmm. There's many places where you don't have to do it. It's just, it's something I focused on. And I think I have friends who are in uh, offices and they enjoy their jobs and they do like it. But they also have panic attacks in the restroom and they don't tell anyone about it. And I wouldn't. I don't know how you can manage a corporation when where people do tell each other about their panic attacks, because yeah. um, even at my, I also make art, and even in my studio we have a rule that we don't take, talk about death or sickness or strong feelings during really? the day. Really? Um, so <laughs> I don't know that. Is that like a posted sign? <laughs> no, people started dying, and then we had to implement the rule. Oh, okay. Um, 
so tell us a little about, so you talked about the, the passport experience. Um, tell us a little bit about like the kind of the evolution of the book. You mentioned the drawings. Um, was there like a point where like the book became really challenging to write? Um, or did you, did you kind of, did you have like the ideal, did you just kind of no. plow through the draft? And, yeah. um, I think a large part of the writing was hard. I interviewed a writer I really love a while ago, Torgny Lindgren, from Sweden. Hardly anyone knows him, but he said that writing was a joy to him, and it, and if it's not a joy, you shouldn't do it. Uh-huh. And I just thought, oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's. A, but sometimes it's a joy. And um, in the beginning, I was still doing the mail job, and whenever I wrote something that had to do with the mail, it immediately started to get really boring. Because I wrote all the details, you know, where they, where the postal workers would put their bags and what the trolley looked like, and uh, I realized that's not going to work. So I, I did this thing where I um, volunteered on a farm, mm-hmm. and I lived, I took care of the horses there, and then I, I rode in the afternoon, and that gave me distance, and that's where I, I wrote a big chunk of the book, and then I went home, and then. Wow, what an interesting life. <laughs> <laughs> That's, those are the interesting parts yeah. that I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a great schedule, though. Um, I had I got up every morning like 5:30 and wrote for an hour before my job to to get through it, and uh, it was tough. <laughs> That's impressive. I couldn't do that. It was the only time I could do it. So, um, speaking of that, there there are a lot of interesting parallels um, with characters from my book and yours and like I really wish they could have met because mine also takes place in an unnamed city um, and there's a guy who so he's made out of paper but he's desperately trying to fit in and be like others and not really stand out and um, a woman who is an unemployed fur model takes him in and lets him live in her apartment and eventually helps him get a job and Russ meets uh, Wanda from the tax uh, uh, department, and she takes him into her apartment and helps him. Um, so I just, I don't know, I thought that was kind of interesting, like there's, there are, you know, in, in these kind of worlds where a lot of people are very isolated, um, there are people that want to step out and help. And uh, it sounds like you did that too with like reading people's letters and stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, there in the book, there are lots of people helping each other, and I think in, uh, in daily life, people do do that. It's mm-hmm. just that uh, in the in some parts of the corporate everything that's systemized um, that's just if you don't it's like this lady said if you don't fit into the system you don't exist <laughs> if this thing that you have to say is not appropriate for small talk you cannot say it mm-hmm. and if your situation that you're in is not listed on the form then you don't then it doesn't exist and that's <laughs> uh, but luckily not every part of our lives is systemized right right um, who were some of the? You mentioned one writer. Um, are there other writers or even artists that you, you know, find found inspiration from while writing the book? I read a lot of Russians. I love that. Yeah, I. Read, we, were, we were talking about Tolstoy earlier. We were talking about Anna Karenina and. Uh, yeah. Um, I yeah, like one of my favorite scenes from Anna Karenina is. Um, it's the chalk scene where um, Levin and Kitty are sitting at a table and they communicate by writing um, only the first letter of each word in a sentence. And so it's a lot of fun as the reader to like try to figure out what they're communicating. But he's basically 
asking when she said no to him the first time for marriage is her second chance and it's it's a really great scene yes she says <laughs> yes also yeah <laughs> um yeah and i think uh, when i started reading i was in art school and i was writing and i was writing all these characters uh, that were almost like um like you said you said before they were a bit like cutouts or mm-hmm. a little bit flat maybe Mm-hmm. Um, and slightly sim- there was something symbolic to them and I was reading books and I, I asked one of my teachers uh, this thing that I do is that, is that a thing? <laughs> um, and he said you should read the Russians and then I read uh, Gogol the overcoat and I was just so relieved <laughs> I thought oh part of something and I, I don't care if it's 19th century or an author so you must read a lot of Russians as well. I do like the Russians. I actually really like Russian pianists or Russian composers. Um, I also play piano, and um, I went through this Russian period where, like, early 20th century music, like um, Shostakovich, Rachmaninoff, uh, Prokofiev, I was, like, obsessed with their music. And I really loved their styles of kind of, like, I felt like they were kind of experimenting with the piano and making it sort of a percussion instrument, but also think of all the, the political situation in the countries that they, um, they were, like, there's a lot of anxiety coming out of their music, and I felt like the way they kind of, dealt with those emotions through the music was really fascinating. Um, I might be reading into this, too, but um, I did pick up a couple of illusions, like um, the company that Russ works for, their logo is a beetle, so I couldn't help but think of Kafka. And there are a couple other references, um, which I thought was cool. You didn't actually mention any titles. I think you call, I think you're talking about the Bible, and you call it the great story. And then um, towards the end, there was a reference to a, a novel about someone who's in the desert and um, is burned, and it sounded like the English Patient. Um, I, I don't know. I was just I curious. If, <laughs> I didn't know if you like intentionally wanted to reference certain stories, but not title them because you wanted to kind of like keep a distance in the this world versus the real world, or maybe there's nothing there. <laughs> uh, but the, well, the English Patient thing, you need to point that out to me. But aside from uh. that. Um, I'll, I'll find it because I definitely marked that. So. Oh, good. Um, the book is very much about stories. Uh, so it takes place in a story world. Mm-hmm. So they reference the other stories. I just see it as this universe of stories. Yeah, well, I- Another great feature of the book is the stories within the story. So um, Mrs. Blue's... Uh, soap opera is cancelled and her, the character is Grace and at one point the novel goes into Grace's sto- storyline and she's like trapped in the show um, and then there's another character who's in a coma and he starts seeing the queen and she's questioning reality and I just loved how that like went within a story within a story I thought that was a really cool technique I had to, I didn't think about it too much when I was writing but people do tell each other they do they tell themselves stories all day long so if the moment that you're in and that's not a story but the story the things you think about that have happened during the day that's a story that's your version of events you think about yourself in a as a as a character not always the way other people see you and the future events we have so many stories about what things are going to be like and all the characters in the book are anticipating a lot. They're thinking about the future a lot, and and somehow they're in their own stories. 
and the narrator is is talking about them as uh, as well, and she's talking about them um, as in the as if they're in their story, in in the story of the narrator and the reader. And then I had stories within the story, like the soap opera. And this, you had the character in the the main character in the soap opera just sort of knocked on my door and said, "I also want to be in the book." <laughs> so she is also in the book, and she has. Um, I can I can read a little bit. I don't know. Is that okay if I read just a little bit to explain? Yeah, I think that'd be great. Let's hear a little more from the book. There's um, Mrs. Blue was a an elderly lady, and she. Uh, watches her soap opera every day and then the soap opera is cancelled and she sees the characters in the soap opera as real and when the soap is cancelled that's a problem because her favorite character was in a situation where she was in trouble uh, so this this chapter is called Mrs. Blue Phones the Studios I just think it's not good manners to create characters let them go through all that trouble and then leave them there that's all I'm saying Mrs. Blue had called information and asked for the phone number of the people who had stopped change of hearts. She was now speaking with the public public services of the overall production studios. But you must see they're not real, the lady at the public services said. Do you understand it? When you start telling a story, the characters and the world they live in are created. You have an obligation to Grace and the others to end the story properly, Mrs. Blue said. Have you tried our new show, In the Eye of the Beholder? It's great. I think you will love it. Are you out of your mind, Mrs. Blue asked. Do you suggest I trade in Grace for some person I have never met? The lady made a noise as if she was blowing into the phone. Look, the people who play the characters are real people who pretend to be different people than they are. And the scenery is not real either. The forest scenes, for instance, are filmed in Montana. Montana, Mrs. Blue said. In America, the lady said. Yes, Mrs. Blue said. I know where Montana is. What I want to know is when can I see Gracie again? Gracie does not exist, the phone lady said. The show has been cancelled because the writer quit. Someone close to him is in a coma and now he can't think of anything else. The show is not coming back. Do you know, Mrs. Blue said, that this fiancé, Rick, is a convicted murderer (laughs) and he pretends to be all nice but you can see it in his eyes sometimes he is not real the phone lady said it's a crime to leave her in that house with him Mrs. Blue said it's a crime her voice broke please she said oh my god Mrs. Blue heard the woman on the other end of the line say can someone take this line from me madam another voice said what seems to be the problem Do you know what happens when you don't end the story properly? Mrs. Blue said in the phone. They relive and relive the last page. Mrs. Blue lowered the phone on her lap and sat quietly, while on the television a chef was throwing tomatoes in the air and catching them behind his back. (laughs) And after I wrote this, I I had this character who was stuck in her her last scene, Grace. Um, So I, I had to write that down as well. Do you want to read that, that scene? Or? Yeah, it's, it's very short. It's right after it. So this is, um, this is the character stuck in the... She's called Grace. I do want to marry you, Rick, Grace said. 
She was standing alone in the hallway of the Fata Morgana mansion, talking to the mirror. There were bruises on the side of her forehead, purple and red bruises, but somehow Grace didn't notice this, like she didn't notice that she kept losing her balance or that her wedding dress was torn. She took a step toward the dresser. I need to know what you're keeping from me. The chandelier above her head swung, swung slowly from left to right, making her shadow dance on the beige carpet. Grace took a hairpin from her hair, her face contorted with pain. A long, bloody strand of hair hung from the hairpin. For a brief moment, Grace stopped. She stood frozen with her hands in mid-air, as if some question came up in her mind, some memory, but she couldn't reach it. Then a voice from downstairs thundered through the hallway. Grace, where are you? Grace dropped the pin on the carpet. She heard footsteps coming up the stairs, loud banging footsteps. A strong feeling of deja vu came over her. Then came the blow to the side of her head and everything went black. And then in the story she starts, at some point she realizes it keeps happening over and over again. And then she starts wandering through this soap opera universe and trying to figure out why she remembers only an hour of each day <laughs> and only the the intro to the love making but never the actual thing <laughs> yeah it's great um, why don't we switch to some audience questions yeah you are from Amsterdam yes and English is your second language that's right how did you become so creative I mean I'm talking about Montana and all this in your writing, it's amazing. I mean, English second language, and here you are so accomplished. Oh, thank you. Uh, I, uh, I, everyone in the Netherlands speaks a little bit of uh, English because we, uh, we our TV is all English and American. Even my grandma the other day said her neighbor was being pushy. <laughs> uh, so you just from an early age you get this English uh, language and then in my case uh, after art school I applied for the Oxford University Masters and my English was already quite good I think um, but it, it got a lot better uh, after living in England so that's uh, I think the reason how are you reaching the storytelling you, you, through Montana in I mean, it's like, wow, you got these little clips of things that are so, you would think somebody's in America. I mean, you're in Amsterdam. You're talking about Montana? Yeah, I'm the, I don't know how Montana got. I wrote down Montana, and then I had to look up where it was. And then, <laughs> so, and then Mrs. Blue in the story says, I know where Montana is, but I, I didn't when I wrote it down. But it, it sounded good. But now I know where it is. So it makes me sound very uh, cosmopolitan. Yeah. Other questions? Can we talk about the jump from visual to literary and sort of how does the brain work? Yeah. Uh, how does the brain work? <laughs> how, how do you identify yourself? Do you say, like, I'm a writer and an artist? Or, or do you hate that question when people are like, what do you do? Oh, no, I just say I'm a, I'm a writer and an artist. And if, the, if I think they won't approve, I just say, I deliver the mail, <laughs> which I stop doing. Um, but then they don't ask questions. No, I just say, I am a writer and an artist. So. And how, so do you feel like 
there are different parts of your brain that you're using when you're drawing versus or no it's art. the same okay it's just i have an idea and then some of the ideas are suited to a story and some of the ideas are suited to become a drawing or but uh, and my sentences are very short and um i like to keep it very clear and simple and very visual because i see everything that i write like i think most writers do mm-hmm. um and i'm not doing beautiful things with the language that's not really uh, it's more about creating the image mm-hmm. in the story yeah you're an artist and a painter are you artist painter oils um, I switched to oil just a few weeks ago so <laughs> um, but I'm mostly drawings and installation art and then writing and, and writing and then how long have you been writing since um, I think to that well Ever since uh, I was a kid, but I think um, seriously since 2002 or something like that. How many books do you have out like this? Is this, first? this is the first. First. And you did the cover art, right? Uh, I didn't. I had the like the background painting of the cityscape. Oh, okay. I sent that to Unnamed Press, and their uh, designer Scott made this. There's a submarine in the story, yeah. and you made this submarine in the sky, and then I just did the outlines oh. so it fitted in with the background. So it's co- a collaboration. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, curious, since you're doing both art and writing for sort of people in those areas, have you ever considered or do you have any interest in doing graphic novels? Um, graphic, um, I, for us I made drawings. Uh, but they just slowly became unnecessary. I would like. I did this uh, department in uh, at art school that was called the Image and Language Department, and they really wanted us to write on our paintings and paint in our books. Uh, <laughs> but it, somehow it's it's quite uh, tricky to merge them, so they're still kind of separated. But I think at some point it will be one thing. Did you ever like them as a as a um, genre or? Sorry. Do you do you like comic books or graphic novels as a genre, or do you find them challenging? Uh, I like books that uh, leave a lot of space, f- and also art that leaves a lot of space for your own uh, imagination. So if it's uh, both, I, I often find it too much. But I'm sure there are graphic novels out there that will blow my mind. So if you have any recommendations. Yeah. Yeah. How long did this project take you? From the start till now, five years. Wow. Uh, but at last, uh, since I've been, I haven't been working, I think the total was three and a half years. And then the last year and a half, it was just a publisher doing all the work mm-hmm. and getting it out there. What next? Uh, I have a, my second novel is almost finished, so I had that year and a half, and then I, after this I will uh, focus on the visual art for a little bit, I think. Anything else? Is it also published in Dutch or just in English? I'm translating it to Dutch, um, and uh, well, my agent is sending it to Dutch publishers, so who knows. Is that an interesting experience to go from English to your own writing to Dutch? It's much harder than I thought it would really? be. I thought it would 
I thought the problem that translators have is that they don't, they're not sure what the writer meant and then they have to figure that out. And I thought, oh, I know exactly what I mean, so it's <laughs> going to be so easy. But it's not easy at all. So I'll translate this sentence like he was sitting in a brown chair by the window and then in, in Dutch it rhymes and it doesn't sound so good and then I think, oh, does the chair need to be brown? Maybe it should, maybe it can be red. And then it becomes his rewriting. So I don't know, it's hard. Well, maybe decide the way that you use the language instead of the But a lot of people do when it's successful, but they have a translator. Yes, yeah, I, I think because I wanted to do this Masters in Creative Writing, I was switching to English, and it just suited my writing style. And I thought, why, I mean, why not switch back to Dutch? Sometimes I write a story in Dutch. Maybe one day if I write something that's set in the Netherlands, I'll have to write it in Dutch. Anyone else? Do you, do you find, I mean, you just talked about sort of the translation of, of languages. Is there something about um, English versus Dutch that sort of aesthetically sounds more pleasing? or? Um, well, English is a more economical language, I think, than Dutch. You can, in English, you can do things while you do other things. And in Dutch, that's you need a new sentence. So in English, you can... Um, scribble on a paper while you're on the phone and in Dutch it's, uh, it, it's um, he was scribbling dot and he was also on the phone so it's a bit uh, yeah oh, you feel sorry for our language I guess but I know other people speak when they speak other languages they're, they, they try to explain sort of um, sort of the syntax of their native language and how it sort of is different. I like to, um, um, I really like in my books and um, in my writing to have this this universal type of setting so people can, for instance, at the post office, I would rather have someone project their own post office on it than having me describe exactly what it looks like. And the language as well, I, I I like it the most when the language is not rooted in any place. So every language has their idioms and expressions and sayings. And I just don't know as many in English, so actually that makes it easier. All right. Well, thank you again, Betty, for being here with us. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.